0: This is the second Sunday in Advent, and we are getting close to Christmas. We're in the three-week countdown to December 25th. Christmas is an unusual holiday, isn't it? It's the only Christian holiday that is at the same time the most celebrated secular holiday as well, even though some in our culture have done their best to take Christ out of it. Christmas is celebrated by millions of followers of Jesus as the second most important holy day on the calendar after Easter. But there can be no Easter, the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead without Christmas. So it's an important day for us. But this season is also celebrated with mixed motives and values by people who do not believe in Jesus at all. This, of course, leads to friction from time to time between the two groups. People who don't want anything to do with Jesus are annoyed by the way Jesus keeps elbowing his way into their favorite winter holiday. Some just want to give gifts to people. They love putting up lights. They like having fun without being reminded that Jesus is the reason for this season. Followers of Jesus want to keep some semblance of sacredness to Advent and to Christmas. It is, after all, Christ's mass. And so we struggle with the secularization of this holy day. We want to hear people say, Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. We want to hear religious music and traditional carols that remind us of Jesus' birth, not just secular tunes that feature Santa and Frosty the Snowman. And so each year, we again live with this tension between the two groups. I like the way author Timothy Keller put it. He said, as a Christian believer, I am glad to share the virtues of this day with the entirety of society. The secular Christmas is a festival of lights, a time for family gatherings, a season to generously give to those closest to us, and to those in greatest need. And these practices are enriching to everyone, and they are certainly congruent with the Christian origins of the celebration. And all of that is true, isn't it? It is our belief here at Redeemer that the birth of Jesus changes everything. And I want to focus our attention this morning on how the birth of Jesus changes the way we think about God most of all. There are plenty of impressions out there in our culture about what God is like that deserve to be challenged. And that's why every week we get together, either online or in person, and we study the life of Jesus because we learn what God is like by understanding what Jesus was like. The Bible claims that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the meaning of the word incarnation. Jesus is the exact representation of God. So to understand the nature of God, we study the life story of Jesus from the New Testament gospel writers. The birth of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, is when all of this began. And so this year during Advent, we're trying to learn more about Jesus by taking a closer look at the events surrounding his birth. And what I'd propose to you today is that the birth of Jesus smashes all of our misconceptions about God. The nativity is the first century version of MythBusters. Today we're going to talk about just two of the common myths about God that are prevalent in our culture today. First, many people today believe that God is distant from us. He's not engaged with his creation. One of the most commonly held myths about God today is that if there is a God, he lives way out there somewhere, detached from what's going on in this world. Some people want to look past the evidence of a creator. They want to believe that all that we see around us completely uh, originated accidentally. Our life on this earth was a result of a Big Bang or an asteroid hitting our planet millions of years ago or years of evolutionary development. And others will say, sure, obviously, there is an intelligent designer of life, but he created the universe and spun it into existence and is now sitting far away, arms crossed, just watching. These are folks who are not necessarily atheists perhaps deists. They have an idea that there is a God who lives out there somewhere, somewhere on the other side of the moon, but he's not actually engaged in our life. But that's not the message of Christianity. Still others might have come to at least partial faith in Jesus. They're trying to follow him, but deep inside, somewhere along the way, they have come to believe a myth that God is not uh, with them. They're too small. They're too insignificant to deserve his personal attention. To them, God might as well be on the other side of the moon. He's aloof from his creation and we're here all on our own. Quite contrary to the myth that God is distant and unknowable and uncaring and removed from the affairs of this earth, Christmas teaches us that God is fully immersed. In the affairs of humankind the truth of the incarnation is that Jesus emptied himself of his rights and privileges of heaven and he became one of us the Bible says that God pitched his tent among us and Christianity alone stands among the religions of the world in that it teaches that God is approachable that he is warm he's inviting and the birth of Jesus, being born as a baby in a manger, smashes any notion that God is standoffish. He's angry. He's wrathful. Do you ever wonder why God chose to come to earth in the way that he did? He could have come to earth as a fully formed person, right? He could have walked out of the desert one day and, as some mysterious and wise teacher and set up shop as king of kings. If I were God, I might have done that, looking tough, looking in charge, kind of like Clint Eastwood. But no, God chose instead to come as a baby. He shrunk himself down to the size of a human embryo in order to be born. Why would God go down the road of rigorous, that rigorous road of common human development? Why would he start life here on earth as a baby? I'll tell you why. Have you ever held a baby? Have you ever rubbed a baby's cheeks? Aren't babies just the softest things on earth? Little babies just sleeping on your chest is the best. Babies are adorable. Jan and I got to be part of the first few days and months of most of our grandkids' lives. And I'll tell you, there's nothing better than holding that baby all snuggled up on your chest. Am I right? Yet it almost sounds disrespectful to call God adorable. But God was willing to go that far, to come to earth as a baby. He came to help us overcome our fear of him. To help us overcome this idea that God is rigid and fearful and unapproachable. No one ever walked into a baby's room and said to their friend, hey, do you see the way that baby was looking at me? He looks like trouble. I don't like the way he was staring at me. Something's not right. Let's get out of here. No, never. It's just the opposite, isn't it? Here's the point. In Jesus, God found a way to relate to us in a way that didn't involve fear. And what's frightening frightening about a baby? We, We might have some fears as a new parent about this new responsibility, but we aren't afraid of a baby. Through the humility and the humanity of Jesus, God was able to find a way to contain his divinity in a vessel that makes himself completely present and approachable. He doesn't lessen his divinity, but he was able to reveal it in a way that was safe. How safe, you may ask. Well, Mary is snuggling with God in a barn in Bethlehem. At Christmas, God busts the myth that he is distant from us by choosing to come to earth in the form of a baby. That choice is then reaffirmed by the name that he chose for himself, His name shall be called Jesus. Let me ask you, if you could have chosen any name for yourself other than the name you have, what name would you have chosen? When I was in elementary school, I hated my name. I didn't know another kid in the world named Rodney. And I was sure I would be happier if my mother had named me Bill or Bob or something more common, something the other kids didn't make fun of. In the Bible, there are many names used for God, and many of them are quite impressive. Even the Christmas story includes a section in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah that reads, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when God became a human being, he intended to close the gap between God and us. So what name did he choose? Chose, uh, choose. God, uh, Jesus, uh, which in the first century was a very common name. As a matter of fact, there were at least five high priests with the name Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus refers to about 20 different people named Jesus. What's the point? Jesus could have been Joe or Jim Or Bob. The New Testament also refers to Jesus in more formal terms like Lord Jesus and Jesus the Christ about 250 times using those titles. But the name Jesus, Just Jesus, appears about 1,200 times. He was just Jesus. And as this Jesus walked from town to town and ministered to people, one thing stands out about him. People were not afraid to approach him. God made it a point to not be standoffish toward us. And we notice that even by the people, Jesus chose to be around him. When Jesus came to earth, he got to choose his friends. And more than that, he got to choose his parents. So who did Jesus choose? He chose parents, a family, not one that was well-off, not one that was well-connected, not one that was socially upscale, but common, ordinary parents. What do we know about Mary? We know that she was young. She was engaged. She was Jewish. She was a virgin. Perhaps the most telling thing that we learn about Mary was how she responded to the news that she was going to become pregnant with Jesus. And she replied, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. God knew how important the influence of a godly mother was for his son, and he chose a servant-minded woman to influence Jesus as he grew up. What do we know about Joseph? We know he was a carpenter, he loved his wife, he was a good man, he was a hard-working man, he was a man that others could respect. And God said, that's the kind of dad that I want Jesus to have. He was a kind, ordinary, hard-working man. Consider the people who show up on the night of Jesus' birth, a group of shepherds. Hard to find more ordinary people in that culture They are the first people to hear about Jesus. And they are poor. They are minimum wage, smelly, overlooked sheep herders. So average, so normal, so me and you. There was nothing in their job or about them personally that would have demanded attention. And yet here they are in the story, immortalized as the first worshipers of Jesus. When Jesus gets older, what kind of people does he surround himself with as an adult? And the answer, again, is very normal people, fishermen, tax collectors. Some were sinful. All were willing to learn they were very ordinary people. I don't know what might have, what you might have thought about God um, when you got up this morning. I would not be surprised if you thought of God as someone who's far away, or impersonal. A lot of people do. But one thing the Christmas story teaches us is that God is not standoffish. He's not unapproachable. He's not the some distant God who's aloof and detached and indifferent. He's not a God who's cold and unfriendly. Instead, he is loving and he's personal and he is engaged with us nor am I sure what you might be going through today in your own life. Perhaps you're going through a season right now when God feels far away. Maybe you're in a situation uh, that's been especially difficult for you or, uh, and it's hard not to feel that God has somehow let you down. The truth is that there will be times when we all feel like that. I mean, we're dealing with a God here who is invisible. And we can't hold him nearer to us which is why faith is so critical so admired by God faith is trusting in someone something we cannot see so if you're going through that kind of season in your life right now I encourage you to spend some time meditating on this Christmas story imagine Jesus in the arms of his mother and know that God is very close to you indeed now let's look at the second myth about god that the nativity crushes and that's the myth that god is somehow ashamed of us or embarrassed by us that he's always disappointed in us for me i think this was the myth that i bought into as a young person before i came to understand differently I had this image of a holy God who was perpetually annoyed and disappointed in me, that somehow I was constantly letting God down because I couldn't be perfect all the time. I hear this from other people too. Maybe you know someone who has said, I kind of feel like I need to get my life straightened out before I can go to church, before I can come to God. What are they saying? I'm not good enough for God. He wouldn't want me in this condition. I'd be embarrassed to go to him. Let me get to the point where I feel enough self-respect to come to God then, and I'll come to God then. Let me show you an interesting aspect of the birth of Jesus that is often overlooked, and that is the genealogy that we find in the Gospel of Matthew in the very first chapter. And you're thinking, genealogies? How boring. Or is it? Has anyone taken a DNA test to find out where you came from? A few years ago, my wife and her brother looked up their ancestry with the help of Ancestry.com and a DNA sample, and were able to trace their family history back to several places in Europe and a few other countries that they would have never imagined. In the first century, genealogies were intended to add credibility to the person that was being written about. And we might hang our diploma, our credentials, from our college or our university on the wall in our office. But for first century people, it was your family. It was your pedigree that constituted your resume. And what's interesting is that many people tinkered with their genealogies, kind of like people polish their resumes today. On our resume, some of us leave out those jobs that we don't want people to ask about, don't we? Anything that might not make us look good. Well, people did that in ancient times with their ancestry because the purpose was to impress people with the respectability of your roots. At first glance, it might appear Matthew is doing that with Jesus. After all, we find Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but. Those, of course, would appear on just about every Jewish person's ancestry. But we also have King David and Solomon. That's impressive. But Matthew does something different that is shocking, more shocking than any other ancient genealogy. He includes people that, instead of polishing the genealogy, actually tarnish it. He includes people that were not even Jewish. Gentiles, Moabites, Canaanites. He includes five women, which alone was unheard of in a male-dominated society. And the women he included, some were famous for doing the wrong things. Tamar tricked her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her in order for her to become pregnant. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba is included, not because of the wrong she had done, but to remind readers of why David is included. David did some bad things. The most notorious was that he had one of his most loyal warriors killed in an effort to cover up his affair with his friend's wife, Bathsheba. Matthew is recalling some of Israel's sordid history. And if God is ashamed of people, would he not be ashamed of these moral failures? All the people that at least from a purely religious perspective we might consider outside of God's love. If the genealogy was a resume, we would think that Matthew might have left these names off. But no. Jesus says, this is my pedigree. These are the people I came from. These are the kinds of people I came for. You know what that means? It means that we need not worry about that we've ever done something that would keep us outside of God's family. Doesn't matter what kind of pedigree, what kind of history we bring with us. God is not ashamed of us. His desire is to forgive us and redeem us and have a relationship with us. For me, my life changed when my perception of God changed. And even as a young elementary student, I heard words that forever changed my life. I heard the preacher say one evening that even if I were the only person on earth who would place my faith in Jesus, he still would have come just for me. He still would have been born just for me he still would have lived in as an average person in an average home still would have made friends with everyone who allowed him to be their friend he still would have died on the cross and rose from the grave because he knows us and he loves us and I remember praying that Jesus would forgive me and teach me what it means to be his follower that was 58 years ago Doesn't feel like that long ago, but I remember waking up and feeling in my heart that a new day had dawned in my life. And from that day forward, I was his and he was mine. So how about you? Are you ready to make that call and trust Jesus to ask him to supervise and direct the days of your life? What better time of year than Christmas time to receive from God the gift of a new kind of life that can be lived by trusting Jesus. Have you already made that decision? Start the new year off right in a few weeks by celebrating the new life that God has given you. See, God became one of us, born in a manger in Bethlehem in order to smash myths that keep people from him. Don't let those untruths keep you from God, the God who loves you. He's not far away. In Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 27, we read these words. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. There's no need to think that God is disappointed in us. God is not ashamed of us. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 2 says Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. It's why he came. It's the reason for this season. It's why Christmas is indeed joyous and holy and good thanks be to god let's pray heavenly father thank you that jesus is your full and final revelation to us and that by grace through faith in him we have salvation and life everlasting we pray today that we will pay attention to all that he says and keep our eyes fixed on jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith we pray that in the power of your holy spirit we will not drift away from the truth of the gospel but finish the race that has been set before us to your praise and your glory in jesus name we pray amen